Oh, shoot. We've still got more. <laughs> it will will whip this one off. Oh, Jesus, man. That's a Gucci. Oh, oh, come on, Brian. That doesn't mean anything. No, man. Let's go, no, man. A Gucci. That's really bad. This isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. Welcome to Two Birds Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Clink, and I am Troy Hartman. We are back to wrap up our three-part special with our guest Bev Vincent as we put a bow on our Stephen King 75th birthday celebrations. We've been doing a deep dive into Bev's fantastic new book, Stephen King: A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. In episode one and two, we covered the first four chapters of the book, which looked at King's early years, his rise to prominence, and his near-fatal accident in 1999. In today's episode, we examine his output in a new millennia, his continued success, and what has been called by many the King Renaissance. As we mentioned in our previous episode, we experienced a little audio dropout during parts of the interview due to internet issues. You may notice it occasionally, but it's not problematic. We want to thank Bev once again for taking such a large chunk out of his day to be with us. And if you like what you've heard, we encourage you to have a look for his new book in store or online. In almost all of our episodes, I like to use a quote about the topic of the show. And here's one I liked from this period of time, from 2000 to present. I think Stephen King may have said it best in a Twitter post from the 4th of September 2017 when he said, if dogs could fly, nobody would go out without an umbrella. (laughs) As a dog owner, Troy, would you agree? (laughs) I'll take that as a yes. And now let's get back to the conclusion of our interview with Bev Vincent. God, that's weird. What the hell is Goofy? All right, welcome back. We're on to Chapter 5 of Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, Life and Influences by Bev Vincent. On Writing is the first new release we get from King following his accident in 1999. Not only is it an invaluable resource for writers, it is also a revealing partial autobiography where King reveals details of his addiction struggles as well as the accident that he was still recovering from. We did a standalone episode with Bev covering On Writing in November of 2021, and we suggest that you have a a listen to that. Uh, Dreamcatcher was King's first novel written after the accident, written entirely in longhand uh, while on Oxycontin. It's far from King's best work, yet he completed the novel in six and a half months while in excruciating pain. And if nothing else, the book gave us shit weasels. Quote, nobody's as defenseless as they are in the bathroom with their pants down, Stephen King has said. Um, 
following the accident, King also made sure he got to finishing the Dark Tower series. Books five, six, and seven were all completed and published between 2003 and 2004. We are seeing an evolution in King's style and storytelling in the new millennium. What stands out for you among those works? A lot of what King wrote in the early parts, especially of the new millennium, but even continuing to this day, has been informed by his accident and his recovery from it. Um, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but even in fairy tale, we have a character who breaks his leg, has an external fixator on his leg like King did, who's worried about being addicted to OxyContin. So that's something that permeates so much of what King has written uh, since then. Um, we have a book like Duma Key, where we have a character who suffers a debilitating accident, loses an arm, suffers um, fugues and, and memory issues and rage issues, um, and also dealing with uh, potentially addicting drugs. I mean, addiction is addiction, and you know that comes up quite often. And then we have a book like Lisi's Story, um, where a character um, dies, and his wife, a writer, dies, and his wife is uh, left to handle his estate in the aftermath. And that also comes directly out of his accident, because a few years after the accident proper, um, one of his internal injuries to his lung reemerges, and he has this horrible incidence of pneumonia, which puts him in the hospital for, I think, even longer than he was hospitalized for the original accident. At which time his wife decides this might be a good time to renovate his office. Well, he's, he's not going to be using it for a little while, so I'll clean things up. And when he's released from the hospital, all of his stuff is packed up in boxes. And he thinks, you know, it's almost like I have died. And so that was the impetus for Lisi's story, which to me, people often ask me what my favorite books are. And I equivocate a bit and I say, Bag of Bones and Lisi's story, because those are bookend novels to me. In Bag of Bones, the author's wife dies, and he has to deal with life without her. And in Lisi's story, the wife is left after the author dies, and she has to deal with life without him and you know, handling all of his affairs and the people who want bits and pieces of him in the aftermath of that. Yeah, I, I had mentioned uh, Lisi's story, sort of highlighted it as one of my favorites from this period. Um, not only is the storytelling wonderful and the story itself is beautiful. Actually, I love the adaptation as well. Um, but the, the bit with the can opener and the terrifying villain of uh, Zach McCool, I mean, those are things that are, you know, if you want to talk about King being a horror writer, those are, if you want to call it a highlight, some of the highlights, I mean, it's just so disturbing. Um, and I, I love all of the characters. Um, also for me, Bev, um, Duma Key stood out. Um, it's the, I think the first time we get King writing, uh, with, with Florida being the, the main setting. Um, although he has, you know, we, we think of King as a writer who writes about Maine, but we do know that, you know, he has traversed his stories all throughout, uh, the states, um, and occasionally also written, uh, about England. I'm just thinking about the Peter Straub inspired, um, was it Couch End? Was it Crouch End? Yeah, Crouch End. Yeah. Um, but Dua McKee, uh, that was, um, a beautiful read. And you have talked in the past, I believe, about, 
um, the audiobook version, um, it, which is <laughs> a, a, a good listen. It's a gothic ghost story. Um, and it's, it's just, yeah, uh, one that stood out for me. Um, you might want to mention or, or talk about that in a second, if you like. Um, a cell also felt, uh, had a very different feel to it. I loved the energy of it. And I know that it was uh, dedicated to George A. Romero. And for me, it really had a Romero feel to it. I think part of it was the economy of the writing. Um, and it's as close as we get that I can recall to a zombie novel from, from Stephen King. Uh, do you have any comments on either Duma Key or Cell? Um, yeah, so Duma Key has, you know, sometimes the, the, you know, we like the main characters, but sometimes a character emerges who, who just sort of almost takes over the book. And so I think in, in Black House, there's the, the blind uh, DJ, and in Duma Key, there's Wireman who becomes uh, Edgar's best friend and sort of, you know, is side by side with him through all the weird stuff that happens. And he's just, he's just a wonderful character. And yeah, the audiobook is uh, narrated by John Slattery from Mad Men, um, who just is now showing up on The Good Fight. Uh, we watched the first episode of that. And there's something about Edgar's voice in this book, which is a little bit sardonic, a little bit sarcastic. And Slattery just absolutely nails mm-hmm. that in the audio version. Now, I have a different relationship with Cell. Mm. Cell never features very highly on my list of King books. And I think my main problem with it is this um, metaphor of the memory as being like a computer hard drive that you can just sort of wipe and restore to factory settings and reboot. Mm. And you know, if, if he had sort of, you know, thrown that in there as being one of, you know, just an early idea and then moved on. But the so much of the book relies on that. And as uh, somebody who's used computers for 40 years and, you know, <laughs> as a scientist and all that, I, that, that just sort of grated on me. And it, 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 I think it ruined my enjoyment of that book. And whatever you do, if you feel inclined to watch the movie, spare your five bucks or two bucks or whatever it is not a great adaptation yeah in spite of the fact it's got samuel L. jackson and john cusack in it even the opening credits look wretched <laughs> it's, it's just not a good adaptation i'm sorry <laughs> yep the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge, standing to the sky for what might have been parsecs in all directions, white, blinding, waterless, without features save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains which sketched themselves on the horizon, and the devil grass which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, and death. So uh, King completes the Dark Tower series. The series is beloved. Where does the series rank in his greater body of work? Well, uh, on the cover of The Road to the Dark Tower, I am quoted as saying it's his magnum opus. That might have been a little premature, of course, you know, because it's hard to say somebody's magnum opus exists when they're still continuing to write. I'm not good at ranking, but... uh, like we said earlier, there are some people who just can't 
read the series at all. And some people, that's the only thing they read. And of course, there are quite a few others like us who've read them, you know, both it and everything else. It's just, it's the through line of his career. Um, began when he's 19, completed ish in, uh, you know, toward, you know, in the late days of his career, although he keeps coming back to it again and again. So we have to say that it's probably one of the most influential things in his career, if not his greatest, but pretty dang good. <laughs> yeah, we are looking forward to doing uh, hopefully next season an actual look at the Dark Tower. Just have an episode with you, Bev, that we would. Uh, I've already read the first book, and I'm most of the way through the second through audiobooks, and and they do a good job, I think, on the um, audiobooks of it. But it is seven fairly thick books, so I will need some time to get through all of them before I feel like I can actually have any kind of conversation with you and Troy, who are expert, who really know your Stephen King. I'm looking forward to my uh, my fourth journey to the tower this winter. <laughs> Um, so Stephen King, the Stephen King universe, I'm not sure if there's even a term for that, but I'm calling it the SKU, um, has a lot of interconnectedness. Characters and places appear in a number of places. Uh, there are three quick examples, but as you've mentioned, Bev, before, as we've been talking to you about all these characters, the through line, the idea of characters reappearing and appearing. So uh, the ones that, these are ones that, uh, uh, Troy provided me, Bev and Richie from, um, it appear in 112263. Holly Gibney from Miss, uh, Mr. Mercedes appears in The Outsider. Father Callahan from Salem's Lot appears in The Dark Tower. And I'm reminded of, of reading all the Game of Thrones books. Those were huge books and the concept of continuity. And I was wondering, um, how difficult it is to keep track of the things that happen to characters in an epic story. Well, I know that when King uh, started to work on the last three Dark Tower novels, he uh, hired a researcher to go through and create uh, a concordance of people, places, things, events of the first four books so you would have a handy reference. And from my own experience as a writer, I know that if I write a new short story that features characters I've used before, I very often have to go back and reread um the the previous work to make sure i've got the details right um rocky wood uh provided a, a an annotated uh synopsis of the shining uh when king went back to do dr sleep um so that he would have you know all reliable details and, and one of the interesting things that i've discovered over the years is that visual media can sometimes overwrite uh the written word and so there are things that we might think that we remember from the books that are actually things that came from the movies. And it's only when we go back and reread the books again that we're reminded that, oh, yeah, that's the, oh, that was this here, but not that there. Um, there's also a concordance uh, that Robin Firth did, um, who did the uh, Dark Tower concordance. She did one for the Mercedes books as well uh, to help King keep the continuity uh, in those books. Yeah, I know whenever I'm uh, going through the Dark Tower now, I always have your book and Robin Firth's books uh, right there. And, and then I, so I spend just as much time in those two books as I do uh, with the Tower books themselves. But one thing is the idea of collaborations, because you have this uh, aside in the book about collaborations from page 208 to 209, where you talk about it. It's, it's hard to try to, because you even mentioned how difficult it is sometimes to try to figure out because King has such a large body of work that's worked with so many people 
uh, things are published. There's things on film, on on uh, radio, and so on. So, and he has also, I believe, collaborated with both of his sons. Yes. Uh, so, can you t- talk briefly just about some of the, uh, co- and also with uh, uh, Peter Strauss? So, can you talk about just some of the collaborations that Stephen King has had? Well, from the uh, the non literary side of things, I mean, anytime you do a a movie adaptation or a TV series, that's by the very nature of it a collaborative thing. Um, unless you've got complete creative control, uh, something like Lisi's story, he had most of that. Of course, there's a director, and the director has a vision. And but King wrote the entire series. Uh, he was executive producer. He was completely involved in something that but that's still a collaboration mm. um from the, the side of the, from the perspective of fiction um as i mentioned earlier there's a couple of stories in the archives from when king's sons were children when he co-wrote some things with him that had never been uh, published or seen the light of day but the the work with the talisman uh from 1984 was his first proper literary uh published collaboration and that was a case where two writers who enjoy each other's company and are sort of like-minded um, in their views of fiction decide to get together and uh, play ping pong or table tennis with a story. And th- there's lots of interesting anecdotes about how they uh, manage that collaboration. And to me, one of the most fascinating things is, although they wrote the first chunk of the book together in the same room, each guy taking a turn at the, at the uh, word processor, um, they went back to their respective homes at that point. And the, although they were working on completely different operating system uh, word processors, they were still able to hook up telephone modems and send snippets back and forth to each other, which given that this was probably 82 or 83, just blows my mind because I'm not sure that at that time or even mm. to this day, either of them were computer geniuses, <laughs> but they made it work. They were, they were able to send the, the book back and forth to each other. Um, and then they got together towards the end to uh, figure out how to wrap it up without coming up with a 5,000 page book um, because they had this really detailed outline and they were only like a third of the way through it. Uh, and they said, well, you know, we, we just can't make a book that big. And so they just sort of hacked and I think they called it the Thanksgiving putsch when they just <laughs> sliced things up. It says, what happens if a limousine just shows up and takes them back home instead of putting them through the ordeal of you know, all those trials and tribulations, getting back from one coast to the other. Um, he's collaborated with some other authors over the years. Uh, he has the Gwendy series with um, Richard Chismar. Um, he did uh, a, a short story with uh, Stuart Onan, um, who he also collaborated on with a nonfiction book about the Red Sox World Series uh, season in 80, uh, 2004. Um, he has... Uh, done some short stories or novellas with his son Joe Joe Hill he has the book that he did with Owen uh, Sleeping Beauties and yeah so these collaborations happen uh, and I believe he co-edited a book on flight with uh, some was random, it you? Some yeah. random guy uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was, that was a collaboration and, and I, I see in your notes there that there was a comment about him working on Dreamcatcher even when the power went out um, mm. during our collaboration on Flight or Fright he uh, he was writing the introductions to all the stories, and uh, after we had assembled the manuscript, and uh, he used to send me those to put into the the, the master manuscript. Uh, and there was one that I got. I think it was the Roll Doll story, where his power was out, and he hand wrote the introduction, and he took a 
photograph and sent that to me. Uh, so yeah, he uh, finds ways to work even under uh, difficult conditions. But people, please buy this book because there is just so much in it. There's just no way we can cover. There's even this stuff about this back and forth between Harold Bloom, one of the harshest critics of Stephen King. But I think we do have to move on to chapter six. So Troy, if you want to take it from here. That sounds good. Yeah, we're going to move on to chapter six, the king of crime, 2010 and beyond. But I did want to f- sort of follow up with your, uh, your testimonial there, David. Uh, yes, buy this book. Um, I think that if you're a, if you are a constant reader, you're going to want to have the book. You're going to, you're going to want to be a king completist and have the book. If you're just getting into king, you're definitely going to want to have the book. And if you just need something on your bookshelf, you're going to want to buy the book. So please. Buy Bev's book. Yeah. So in, in the 2010s, we get into shorter books, tighter prose. Um, and I'm thinking specifically right now of the Mr. Mercedes books, which I really love. Um, I, I love how tight those books are. Um, and we get into a concept that's been with King for a while, I suppose that, you know, the monsters are us. We get, we get fewer, you know, say, killer cars or dogs or whatever. And we get to the the point that we are the monsters. Um, A couple of things that, that hit me uh, as highlights from this era were 11, 22, 63, which I still, if I had to make a short list of a top 10 of King, I'm sure it would be in there. Um, It's I I can't stop loving this book. Um, and which we can talk about all of these things, to, but Dr. Sleep, I also wanted to mention. So 112263 brought me to this point where I was like, yeah, there's a reason I've been reading this guy all my life. And this is, this is why like books like this are the reason why. Um, so it brought me back to reading the older books and I read The Shining immediately after 112263. And I got to a point when I finished it, I was, I was blown away. It actually reminded me of a book like Gerald's Game era of his fiction. And I thought, wow, he's always been doing this sort of specific um, stories about strong characters and domestic situations. Like uh, for some reason, I, I thought I had skewed my remembrances of The Shining, but it was such a good read. And it wa- had me wondering, well, what's going on with Danny now? Danny's out there. Like, what's going on? What happened to Danny? Did Danny become Jack? And then I found out Dr. Sleep was coming. <laughs> um, and that was a wonderful read. Uh, do you want to get into some of these, um, Bev? I know it's not a specific question right now, but um, yeah, feel free to take it. Okay. 11-22-63 is an idea that King had when he was still a teacher before he really started being a novelist. And I think he realized at the time that it was going to be a big story, high concept, and it was going to require a lot of research, which he didn't have the means to do. And the the concept for that book comes up again and again uh, over the years in various different places. Um, there was an issue zero of the Dark Tower graphic novels in which there's an interview with King, and he talks about an idea for a graphic novel that is based on the concept of going back to save Kennedy. And in The Wolves of Akala, uh, Father Callahan has this uh, little debate with some people about, you know, what would happen if somebody went back to save uh, John Kennedy? And essentially the, the story uh, of 112263 is laid out there. 
So, I mean, it's an interesting concept uh, and it did require research. King took his research assistant with him and they went to Dallas and they saw all the places and they got all the geography and did all that. But it's also just an amazing love story. I mean, the, the, the Sadie character is so well-drawn and that romance that wasn't part of the plan. It just happens, you know, while he's sitting around twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the momentous day to happen. Um, and, and, you know, the uh, Hulu adaptation of it is really quite well done as well. They, they picked a nice Canadian actress to play Sadie and she just owns that role. Um, they solve the problem of the internal uh, monologue that happens throughout most of that book by giving him a sidekick to explain mm. things to Bill. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, Bill was in the book, but he just sort of vanishes out of it early, but uh, they keep tagging along. Um, you talk about, you know, wondering what happened to Danny. Uh, over the years, people have often asked, you know, what happened to Danny and what happened to Charlie McGee? Uh, and King always used to be sort of flipping and saying, well, you know, the two of them got married and, you know, you should, you should see their kids. <laughs> I, I, I note with some interest the fact that the main character in fairy tale is named Charlie Reed, but on um, two different occasions, he's identified as Charlie McGee Reed, um, which I think is another instance of his concept that stories bleed into the creative process, perhaps. Um, what we know that Charlie's father, Father has read some Stephen King because there are some quotes that his father, but he remembers from his father. Um, I call this section the King of Crime because King really starts to embrace the the crime genre, and he is not a stranger to it. If you go all the way back to his early days, there's a lot of his early short stories which are straight crime stories. Uh, things like The Ledge and Quitter's Inc. and uh, the the Wedding Gig and The Fifth Quarter, not a monster or a supernatural thing to them. But he does something interesting with the horror genre. The, he has the three books that he did through Hard Case Crime, and they start out with Colorado Kid, which is a little bit mystical, but you know, more or less, it's a couple of old guys sitting around talking to this young woman about something that happened. And then you move on to Joyland, where there's a fairly overt, but still a little bit subtle, ghostly influence. And then you get to later, which opens with, this is a horror story. And so there's that evolution. And the same thing happens in the Mercedes books. Mr. Mercedes is completely straight crime. And Finders Keepers is almost completely straight crime, although there's a little hint at the end that something weird's going on. And then we get into End Watch, which is just something weird's going on, and it's beyond the <laughs> realm of what we uh, know. And then even the evolution then on into uh, The Outsider, which is clearly, you know, it's classic King. Uh, there's something outside our realm, and it's something that he's used in many different books, like Bag of Bones and, uh, you know, Pennywise is something from outside, which is inserting itself into our um, existence and doing nasty things. Um, but then we move back to Billy Summers, which is 99% straight crime, uh, a hitman, uh, the last uh, gig before you retire, which is, you know, one of the tropes of the genre and nothing, some things go right, but then things start going wrong. But then he leads us across America and we end up in Sidewinder, Colorado and looking out across the hills at this 
place where that hotel used to be, you know, a long mm-hmm. time ago. And there's something weird over there. And it's just like a little wink and a nod to his constant readers to say, you know, I've taken you through the straight thing, but, you know, I haven't forgotten where I came from. You know, that place is still there in the back of my mind. Yeah, you touched on The Outsider, which also has a pretty fantastic adaptation that was on HBO. Um, very loyal to the the book. Um, but the novel itself, yeah, it's so uh, artfully done where you're, you're reading the first hundred pages or so and you think you're reading uh, just straight crime. And then it morphs so subtly, so subtly, and it goes somewhere else. And it's just, it's a fantastic read. And that's what I was saying to David. I'm just amazed that in the, this last uh, decade, that we deal with how strong the output is. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's really remarkable how strong the output is. Um, there's also a point in the outsider. I'm sort of debating whether to have a spoiler here or not. I kind of don't want to just for when uh, a new reader might come across it, but there's a character that we get in there um, pretty far into the book. And I, almost cried when I saw this character. I was so happy. I felt like a friend came into the room and uh, I actually had to put the book down for a second. And I went and told my wife, I said, so-and-so is back. <laughs> you know? Uh, you um, know, writers talk about how sometimes the characters take over and lead the way. And, you know, I think characters like Jerome Wireman, for example, uh, I'm not sure if King originally intended for him to be as influential in Duma Key as he ended up being. Hmm. But once somebody like that sort of catches a breath and says, okay, you know, pay attention to me. I've got some interesting things to say and do. Um, and I think that's happened a number of times. Uh, uh, the character that you're referring to is somebody who originally only meant to have a walk-on role. And he became so interested in that character that he gave that character a voice and that character has become quite uh, a force of nature uh, in, in other works. Yeah. Another character that um, uh, constant readers love is Jack Sawyer. Now, clearly you don't have a crystal ball, um, but uh, especially, you know, with what's happened with the loss of Peter Straub, um, do you think that perhaps we'll, we'll ever see a third Jack Sawyer novel? I don't want to say no definitively. I do know that Peter and Steve had talked about the broad strokes of what the third book was going to entail. Um, I was at an event in uh, Brooklyn a number of years ago, which was Peter and his daughter Emma and Stephen and his son Owen on stage, you know, talking and reading and answering questions. And of course, the, the question actually came up because Stephen and uh, Peter were there together. And they gave a little bit of a hint about what the motivator of the third book would be. And we know that at the end of Black House, Jack is in a position where he's pretty much stuck in the territories. And the idea was Talisman was sort of jumping back and forth. Uh, Black House was primarily in our world with a few little dabs in Black, into the territories, but that the third book would be almost exclusively in the territories. Now with the loss of Peter Straub, I think that Steve would have a hard time accepting in his own mind, perhaps writing that book without Peter. Um, but I don't want to say 
it's absolutely definitively not going to happen, but I would be very surprised if it ever did. Mm. So as of this recording, Stephen King has published 39 books in the 21st century, including Fairy Tale, which was published uh, just a couple of weeks ago, September 2022. Uh, There have been 25 feature-length film adaptations so far this century. What are your favorite uh, 21st century King novels and adaptations that I know you don't like to rank, but just, you know, any personal faves out there that, uh, that have hit you? Well, I've mentioned Lisey's story. Um, of course, Duma Key, uh, you know, the, the end of the Dark Tower series. Uh, there, there's, there's very, I have three books on my shit list, um, that all are older books, uh, that I say, you know, anybody asks me what my least favorite are, I have no trouble coming up with those. But I've, I've enjoyed everything that he has been writing uh, in, in the past 20 years. Scribner, I think, has been a very good environment for him. Um, his uh, sobriety has been good for him. His uh, physical recovery, although, you know, you never fully recover from something like that, has been very good for him. And so we've been in a real golden age of uh, King's writing. He's He's just firing in all channels. The creativity, the different directions he's going, you know, he's doing supernatural, he's doing crime, he's doing fantasy. Uh, it's just been a great time to be uh, a King reader. So in terms of adaptations, um, uh, there, there have been a lot of good ones. Um, Mike Flanagan has done some great work uh, with Gerald's Game. Dr. Sleep, I think, didn't get the the credit it was due. Um, 11-22-63 was very, very good adaptation. Uh, Lisey's story, just, I, I thought, it, aside from being, you know, a good adaptation, visually, just absolutely mm. visually stunning. Um, you know, the, the It adaptation, uh, the first part better pro- perhaps than the second. Um, problem, problematically, though, I think it caused, uh, a resurgence in people wanting, like in the 80s, people wanting to sort of ride the coattails of that and oh, yeah. capitalize on the money machine. And so we've seen some things that had potential, um, but really didn't live up to the promise. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the Pet Cemetery reboot. Oh, yes. Um, the Firestarter reboot, which I didn't even bother to see. Dark Tower. Um, I'm curious. Well, you know, Dark Tower, I, I like for certain reasons. Um, I'm curious to see what will happen with Salem's Lot because I really do think that we were are primed for a remake of that because the first one was good in its era, but it's dated. The second one wasn't my favorite adaptation. Um, I really liked what they did with the Mercedes series. Mm. And it was a shame, I think, at first that a lot of people didn't get to see it because it was on a streaming service that people didn't get, but then it's had a new life on the, the Peacock channel. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is just delightful in his curmudgeonliness. Um, having his next door neighbor pop in and just liven things up. Uh, her name is Silver. She doesn't exist in the books, but she makes a, a great adaptation, a great addition to the series. Their, their decision to tell the story out of order, um, you know, to put Finders Keepers, uh, mm. last and watch in the middle just, just because that had to be the way things had to be. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a really, really good, uh, adaptation. And, you know, you get to see, uh, 
another uh, famous King cameo, which becomes part of the opening credits of the third series with him with a meat cleaver in his head in the, uh, in the uh, restaurant, uh, which is part of a fantasy uh, scene from the second series. Yeah. So that, it, that there was, has been a, what a, I did call for a long time, a golden age of adaptations, mm. which was primarily in the 2010s because of the diversity of available platforms, the streaming services, and King being the experimenter says, okay, let's let somebody do Netflix, let somebody do Apple TV, let somebody do Hulu, let somebody do HBO Max, and, you know, let things fall where they may. Um, but then, you know, there's been some less successful, in my opinion, um, things like The Stand, which mm. I think really, if you're going to remake something like The Stand, which was pretty darn good in the first place, you really should do something uh, that makes it worth all of that time and effort. And I'm not sure that that uh, happened. Um, I do a column uh, every year for the Overlook Connection. They do a Stephen King calendar. And I do, this is what happened last year, and here's what I think is going to happen next year. And in the 2021 one, there were a lot of um, streaming adaptations to talk about. And I had a list at the end of, you know, these are the things that have been optioned and there's been you know, writers attached to them and there's been directors attached to them. And absolutely none of those happened in 2022. Um, and wow. the only streaming adaptation we've yet to see, we're going to see, we haven't seen yet is uh, Mr. Harrigan's uh, telephone, which will be on Netflix uh, in October. I think they've announced now. Um, but so this year I wrote my thing, you know, we've, had some, you know, some lackluster cinematic adaptations, no streaming adaptations. There's a whole chunk of things we might see next year, but who knows? Many have been optioned, few have been mm. produced. <laughs> mm. Well, Troy and I talked a bit about this stand, um, and, and with an actress who I think is amazing in Whoopi Goldberg. So I watched, Alexa and I watched the first episode of this miniseries. And thought it was really good. And then I mentioned that to Troy and said, well, actually the, the series sort of peters, it just doesn't quite keep at that level for all of the episode, which sort of disappointed. I may still want to get around to watching the whole thing, but it started, I don't know if you had the same sense that it just didn't quite carry on as well as it did after the first episode. I stuck with it primarily because I wanted to get to the last episode where King had written a whole new scene that's new to us viewers and readers, something that happens after the end of the, the novel. And uh, I thought that was worthwhile. Mm. Um, but for the rest part, I thought they were just sort of treading water. You know, we've seen this story before. We know what's going to happen. Um, the things that they did with some of the characters were a little bit beyond the pale. I didn't like what they did with Trash Can Man. Mm. Um, even Randall Flagg was, you know, not quite as not quite as menacing, just a little bit too flippant, I thought. Um, I mean, the, the, the core heroic group I thought was really good, really solid. They had great actors, great performances, but uh, they just didn't bring anything new to the table. Yeah, and, the, you know, the novel, one of the biggest things in the novel is, and I won't spoil it, but there's a, a moment in the book that blows your mind the first time you read it. And they spoiled that in mm -hmm. the first or second episode by making it nonlinear. Yeah. And, mm. and I was so angry that they did that. <laughs> it was like, you've got this built into your story and you've just ruined it. Mm -hmm. You've, you've ruined that, that surprise. Anyway. Um, 
I guess we are pushing on toward a conclusion here, eh, Dave? Yeah, if, if they could have just uh, gotten Jonathan Price, who was so great as Mr. <laughs> Dark in uh, Sunning Wicked This Way Comes, because um, he was quite good with that. Well, I, so, I would like that. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, we're getting towards the end, uh, Bev. So um, do, you, do you have any King-related uh, projects in mind for the future that you are allowed to tell us about? The one that I've done most recently, which turned out really great, was uh, it started with a text message from Brian Freeman. And he said, do you think that there is enough material in this concept for an essay? And the concept was uh, original titles of King books. And so I scratched my head for a bit and I thought, well, you know, there's this one and there's that one. And there's that, yeah, okay, I think I can do that. And so I did an essay that's called What's in a Name? And there's something like 12 or 14 projects that had different working titles. We've mentioned a couple of them. There was, you know, a second coming, which was eventually Salem's Lot because Tabitha decided it sounded like a sex manual. And there was Cancer, which was the original title for Dreamcatcher. And so I, I wrote a little bit behind each one about how the titles came about and why they were changed. And then so Brian Freeman uh, contacted this uh, French uh, Canadian artist named Francois Viancourt to create covers for these alternate versions of these books. And he made this book that he made available to his Patreon customers. And it's it's an elegant, beautiful little chapbook. And I'm, I'm really, really pl- proud of it. And it's uh, gotten a lot of notice, uh, including I had an email a couple of weeks ago from uh, King's publisher in the UK saying, oh, I just heard about this. You know, where can I get a copy of it? And I had to say, well, it's not available for sale. It was only to Patreon. But I do have some extra ones here, so I'll, I'll send you one. But beyond that, uh, nothing in the works. Um of course, you know, I, I still do the News from the Dead Zone uh, essays for the Cemetery Dance online website. Um, if people come up with an idea and they broach it to me and I think it's interesting, I'm always open to those. But right now I'm more or less concentrating on my own fiction. Um, but that's sort of my focus these days. One of the things that I love about your book is about the influences, how you actually tie in every story and where he got the idea and what he did. And the fact that he is, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, that in some case he might refer to a W.W. Jacobs, the monkey's paw or some of these other uh, stories. And I actually had this idea for a story from reading your book <laughs> about Stephen King, about the idea of, you know, how wishes you try to make a wish. And there's always fraught, you know, it's always there's a negative side to it. Or just like, I don't know if it was an X-Files episode where I think Mulder wished for peace on Earth, of course, or maybe a Twilight Zone, and there's no one on Earth because that's peace on Earth. And, yeah. and you know, this concept of, I wish I could save uh, Kennedy. That, that'll make everything better. Right. Exactly, exactly. So I had I had this idea of, you know, how William Matar has hurt in a car called William Matar. So I was thinking, what if you had a lawyer for wishes? If you got a wish, you got a genie bot, if you got something that was a wish, you would have to, of course, write it out properly, because otherwise, whatever this <laughs> thing is will wreck it. So you have to have a lawyer who helps you with the writing up of how to actually do that wish. So I was thinking like, uh, you know, get a wish called William the Fish or something like that. (laughs) And it would be some kind of a thing about the lawyer for wishes. 
but that concept came to me from reading your book. So thank you for that. Yep. So better call Saul for that. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there, there's a movie out now called 3000 years of something or other. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's Idris Elba is the genie in the bottle. And Tilda mm. Swinton is the woman who gets her hands on it. And they have the mm. 3000 year relationship over these wishes. Wow. I was telling David that you have a story. Uh, it's the title has just escaped me. Something like special delivery about yeah, special these, delivery. Yep. Yeah. About these, these sort of like, uh, but the guys like, in the basement and that's yes. inspired by being my own writing. You know, where do there ideas you go? Come from? Yeah. Where do ideas come from? And so this writer keeps getting deliveries of things, a box that he has to open and look inside. And there's the idea for his next book. And they get, creepier and creepier until he doesn't want them anymore, but there's no return in the boxes. So we just, just got to <laughs> accept delivery. I have a book that I want to pitch uh, to somebody called King's cars. It would be like a, uh, a coffee table book. And it, so, you know, it include things like Christine and the Buick eight and the low men vehicles and some pictures from maximum overdrive. And <laughs> if, if you wanted to get away from cars and make it vehicles, you could have Blaine the mono in there as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I should actually just get on with writing my stories. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, cause I had this idea for a title, but I, and then I Googled it cause I'm sure someone must have used this. Someone must have had a title, which is everything you wanted to know about Stephen King, but were afraid to ask. No, I don't I, think that's been used yet. Has yeah, it? But that's a great title because the idea yeah. of fear in, you uh -huh. know, a, can you actually ask that? Well, I don't want to over explain it, but I think that would be a kind of a cool title for a Stephen King. I was almost thinking we could call that podcast that, except I think we're going to keep this title to the title of your book. Um, and one well, more so thing. The, and the title of the book actually to me is significant because mm. this isn't a, a literal biography. Mm. I'm not so interested in the mundane details of King's life, you know, on a daily basis. What I'm interested in is the intersection between what goes on in his life and mm. how that percolates into what he's writing. And sometimes it's an immediate response, you know, but there are so many things where some little incident happens. He's walking across uh, out in the country to pick up his car that's broken down and he walks across this bridge and his boots make this noise and he thinks of the three billy goats gruff and just mm -hmm. that snapshot of a thing trans, mm. you know, translates into it or just images out of nowhere. He sees himself in this basement apartment and all he can see are these feet walking by in the sidewalk outside. Mm. And that scene gets him to thinking and that becomes Billy Summers. The where creativity comes from biography or from the imagination. That's what really interests me. On September 21st, this is uh, being recorded on September 11th, 2022. So in 10 days, on September 21st, 2022, that will be the 75th birthday of Stephen King. And Bev, how will you celebrate? Well, I'll have to work that day. I have a day job, so I'll be putting <laughs> in my nine to five. And, and my wife have this long-standing tradition that, you know, really we, we uh, accelerated during the coronavirus thing is that we say every night is date night so my wife and i will certainly be sharing a bottle of wine and some dinner but beyond that you know it's steve's birthday it's not mine um mm. my book birthday is uh a day after tomorrow as we're recording this so that that'll be a day for celebration but i'm sure i'll send steve a message and uh that will be probably the extent of that celebration 
Uh, although I, I, I'll probably be on Twitter plugging it, uh, plugging my book uh, shamelessly because uh, you know that's one of the things we have to do when we have a book. You have mm-hmm. to uh, make sure people know about it. And one thing I'm really excited about this book is that the previous one, the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, was a Barnes and Noble exclusive. So if you didn't live in the United States, it was difficult to get, and it was a limited print run, and they kept running out. Uh, you know, they sold out. Quarto is publishing this thing worldwide. You can get it absolutely anywhere and everywhere. Uh, if you want to do Amazon, if you want to do your favorite indie bookstore, if you want to do Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. And uh, on my website, I have a couple of links to places. If you want to get signed copies, there are two local bookstores where I've agreed that I'll go in and I'll sign whatever copies people order, um, which is new for me. I've never done that before. I never keep inventory on hand so you know people say can i get a signed copy and i say well you know if you'll send me one i'll sign, sign, sign it and send it back but this book's three pounds so it's not so cheap to <laughs> do the round trip mailing. but uh yeah so village books uh, in the woodlands and murder by the book are both uh, selling signed copies all right bev well it wouldn't be a stephen king chat without uh having a send-off of long days and pleasant nights sigh there will be go- water if god wills it yeah. <laughs> and this was, and, and, uh, thanks a lot, Bev. And this was our Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life, and influences, uh, celebrating the launch of the new book by Bev Vincent in conjunction with Stephen King's 75th birthday. Um, thanks to our special guest again, Bev. Thank you so much again for coming by your third time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on and let me babble on and on and on and on and uh, for helping me promote my book because that's what we authors have to do. <laughs> but I really enjoy talking to you guys. This has been uh, free ranging and broad and encompassing all sorts of things. And this has been terrific. And I guess technically this counts as not only your third time on the show, but your third, fourth and fifth time on the show. So it's, it is really a hat trick. So you're we going sh- into overtime. Uh, no, I think, <laughs> I think you're the no need for sudden death here. You are the clear winner. Alrighty. Well, uh, remember to catch us on all our socials. Uh, our website is two uh, of.ca. Uh, Twitter is at too old fart sci-fi. And on Facebook, we are too old farts talk sci-fi. And we also want to remind you that we are now officially available on Spotify. So it makes it a lot easier for people to find us um, and do all the things you're supposed to do, like uh, tell a friend and uh, like and subscribe and uh, stop, drop and roll. I am David Clink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'll take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. I've got to stop this damn thing. Okay.